If you were to encapsulate the book of James into five words or five themes, they would be trials, first of all. Second of all, the position of our heart, so trials, heart. Third, the direction of our feet, that is the way that we're walking or where we're going. Our action of prayer, prayer being the fourth word. And then fifth, not finally, but fifthly, is the tongue. What it is that we do with this four-pound piece of meat enclosed within our mouths and our teeth. Uh, and so tonight's study, chapter 3, deals entirely with the tongue and the believer. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the Christian and, and what comes out of our mouth. In the book of Proverbs, you can't read more than but a couple of verses before you come upon some instruction or some uh, wisdom that's given to us there concerning the use of our tongue. Our tongue has the potential of doing a lot of good in people's lives and in this world, but it has the equal potential of doing much harm and a lot of damage. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, the contrast is set this way. Solomon says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And it's amazing to consider that on two opposite ends of the spectrum, death and life, and yet they can each be affected by what comes out of your mouth and my mouth. It's an incredible power that you and I possess in our ability to do nothing more than to just speak. Jesus addressed the power of words in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. In verse 33, he said these words. This is Jesus. He said, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, speaking, of course, to the religious people and the Pharisees and scribes of his day. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So not only do our tongues, our voices, our mouths have the ability to speak life or death in those that are affected by what we say, but even our eternal destiny spiritually will be ultimately determined by things that come out of our own mouths. And Jesus said that what comes out of our mouth is just the fruit or the proof of what exists within our heart. And so, therefore, the tongue is a very important thing to the Christian because it reveals what's going on inside the life, and thus the Bible has a lot to say about it. Now, before we get into the text of chapter 3, I want to give you a quick outline of what James says to us in these 18 verses. So just real quick, if you have a pen, you could write these things down just so that you know where we're going. In verse 1, he says, In verse 2, he goes, Zip it! In verse 3, he says, quiet. In verse 4, he says, shh. In verse 5, it's shut your trap. <laughs> In verse 6, it's hep. In verse 7, it's you are doing this and you should be doing this. In verse 8, are you getting the gist of where we're going with things? <laughs> Just so you have an idea of what's going on. In chapter 3, but he begins and it says in verse 1 here, James says, My brethren, speaking very endearingly and with much humility, he says, Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, he begins this, this chapter with an exhortation, which is a runway into the theme of what and how we should uh, use our tongue. 
And he says that we should be not many masters. And the word that is used there in the Greek that's translated in the King James masters is the word uh, didakios. It's where we get the word doctrine, literally, or teaching. And so he's talking about those that are teachers. Oftentimes you'll read that when Jesus was uh, addressed by his students or his disciples or those that were present, that knew him to be the rabbi, they would say, Master. It's the same word. And they were calling him teacher. In fact, if you have a New King James, often it's translated just that way. And so James is saying, be not many teachers among you because we will receive the greater condemnation. Now, there's something within all human uh, beings, human nature, that we desire to be influential, especially when the influence that we can uh, give to somebody is a good and positive influence. And so we we give our lives to Christ and and good things begin happening. We recognize truth and we immediately want to give that truth away. And so there's a temptation after we've been a Christian for a little while or we've been a part of a church for a while and God begins to speak to us in the word that that we want to share that influence with as many people as we can. And so it's common for people to desire to be teachers within the body of Christ. And what James is doing as he sets this up is that he's warning against that tendency that we have And the reason for that is because we will receive the greater condemnation or uh, more literally the stricter judgment or the stricter scrutiny. Now, what that doesn't mean is that being a teacher puts our salvation in the balances. That if we teach and we do something wrong, that that we might um, move ourselves from a place of salvation to now condemnation, where we once were headed to heaven, but now we're going to go to hell because of something. That's not the idea behind the condemnation or the judgment that he's speaking of. But rather, he's talking about two things. First of all, he's talking about the daily interaction that we have with God. He's saying that God is going to be stricter in the way that he deals with someone who is a mouthpiece in the body of Christ. And also, it also speaks of the judgment that every one of us will have when we stand before him in heaven and give account for the things that we did with our lives while we were in the world and in our bodies. And for those that are teachers or spokesmen within the body of Christ, they're going to be held to a, to a higher standard or a stricter standard when they're standing before him in that context. And James says, that's no small thing. And so for that reason, and that reason alone, he's saying don't be ambitious to move beyond what God has called you to be and move into that role of being a teacher or a spokesman within the body of Christ. It is very much a calling that God places upon a person and not a vocational choice that they make or something that they want to do with their life. And I can tell you this, is that if I wasn't called to be doing what I'm doing right now, I wouldn't want any part of it. Because I know what it means when James says that we'll receive the stricter judgment or the stricter scrutiny. God needs his spokesman to understand things about people that not everybody needs to understand. And so God takes us through things and he causes experiences to come into our lives that serve no other purpose than relatability. The ability to be able to relate to things that people are going through or to be able to represent God to people that are going through things that otherwise we wouldn't understand. And if there was nothing else other than that, I would say if it wasn't for the calling, it's not worth it because there's some difficult things that you have to go through. Now, notice what he has to say about this in terms of his reason in verse 2. He says, for, and for is always a reason word, He says, for in many things we offend or stumble or or, um, put a stumbling block in the way of all. And if any man were to offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the entire body. He says the part of the reason why we're going to receive the stricter judgment and why God holds us to the standard and, 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 and deals with us the way that he deals with, with us is because we're doing something that, that, that has the ability to stumble a person in their walk with Christ. 
That they're walking along with him and, and everything is just fine. They're pursuing him. They're in their path of life. And something that I say or something that a teacher says to you can put a tripwire in your path and cause you to fall flat on your face when otherwise you would have been just fine in the direction that you were going. And that's a scary thing. I remember a couple of years ago, I was uh, in the hallway on a Sunday morning, and um, a young woman came up to me, and she just said, I just want to thank you so much uh, for, for your Bible study. And I said, well, you know, thank you, I, I appreciate that. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. She said, I, I've had this decision that has been weighing on me for months that I need to make. And I've been at this crossroads, and I've been at a standstill in my life because I haven't known what it is that God wants me to do in this thing. Should I go left or should I go right? And this thing has been keeping me up at night. This thing has been tormenting me uh, for a long time, which way to go on things because of, of the ramifications that it will mean for the rest of my life. And she said, and you said something two weeks ago on a Wednesday night that was the answer from the Lord that I was looking for. And, and, and she was, she was, you know, paying me a compliment and just extending thanks. And I almost fell on the ground. And, and, and I was trembling. I was like this. I, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I got scared. The hair on my arms started to stand up and, 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 and I, and I just walked stiff for a little while and just found a place. And I, and, and it just hit, and I knew this, but it hit me. And I realized people are making decisions for their life that are going to affect the outcomes of their future based upon things that I'm saying while I'm teaching the Bible in the church service. That's a fearful thing. You know, that if I said something that was untrue or that was misleading, or if I was trying to just be uh, glib or eloquent and, uh, and creative in the way that I was saying things, and, and to misconstrue the, will, the, the word of God in a way that could lead a person to make a decision that's not, not the will of God for life, even the potential of that happening is a fearful thing. And James says, for we all offend in many things. In other words, it's going to happen from time to time, that there's going to be a mistake that's made based upon something that we say. There's other reasons why people are stumbled, not just because we're saying things that affect the decisions that they're making for their life, but also because it's possible and probable oftentimes that there's an incongruency between the things that I say and the things that I do within my life. Every one of us has the, the, the ability to not have perfect alignment between our profession and our actions, right? And, and if that's just a Christian, it's one thing. But when it's a pastor or a teacher, and you're saying one thing concerning this life that we live, and then you're doing something other than that, or even just in a weak moment when you're seen, it can cast a stumbling block in someone's path, and it's a dangerous thing. Sometimes it can be because our doctrinal um, position on things or, or the way that we see things in Scripture could be inaccurate. Or we might only be seeing one facet of a particular truth. Or we could be flat out wrong about something that we're saying or a position that we're taking on things. And that could cause someone to stumble so that when they leave a Bible study or a church service, they're believing the wrong thing about God. And then what a fearful thing to think that you can be misrepresenting the person of God or the truth of God based upon the things that you say. That's why I love verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book teaching of the Bible. Because for me, it's the safest way to give you the counsel of God in the context of God so that I'm not taking things out. And I'm sure I still make mistakes, but uh, what a dangerous thing to be able to do that. Uh, in, in a way, it's possible to tear down in a time when God is seeking to build someone up or it's possible to build someone up in a time when God wants to tear them down. And uh, and so there's many ways that we can stumble all. And James says, don't be in a rush to get into that position because it is a fearful thing. And so because of that, God always with his teachers, those that are speaking for him, he is constantly shaping, he's constantly shaking, teaching, humbling, refining, and bringing us through things so that we can represent him in a right and an accurate way. And, and you know, this could almost shut me up indefinitely if I think about it too long. 
you know, and, and carry it down. It, the, you know, well, if I say this, is it going to cause this and the whole thing? And, uh, and sometimes you just, by faith, I have to say, okay, Lord, you, you have put me in this position. Help me not misrepresent you, uh, in it. He says, if any man offend not in word, that is, if it, if it were even possible for a man to not offend someone with his words, then that man would be considered a perfect man and able also to bridle or to control the whole body. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anyone here that's perfect? Because I'm not, you know, and I've never met anybody that's perfect. And so what he's saying is essentially that if we speak for God, there's going to be times that we make mistakes, and there's going to be times when there are errors. There are a couple things about God that absolutely blow my mind. And, and if I think about them long enough, they lead me to the conclusion that God is way more in control than we even think or than, 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 than we give him credit for. And that where he is, think about it, he's in heaven and he's seated upon his throne. He looks at us and he thinks, well, I've got them contained within this planet and they can't really survive too far outside of it. And I've got pretty good control over the things that happen inside that planet. And so I'm not too worried about it. And I think God must take that position on a lot of things. Because when I think about, first of all, I look at a child that I'm holding, right? I'm holding this child in my hands. I've got five of them. And when I realize, you know, what, what, what's going on when I'm holding that child in my hand is that God has put a life in my stewardship, in my care, and he's given me the task to raise up and shape that life. And when I think about what that in, implies and what it means and what goes into that, I think, are you nuts? I, I, are you crazy? You're going to put control. I mean, I can say and do things to this child that will make their existence in this world miserable. I could ruin them for their three score and ten based upon the things that I do and the mistakes that I make. And yet you're going to trust me to raise this child, not just one, but five or as many as, as, as I can possibly have. Are you crazy? I think about what I'm doing right now. God, you're going to put a Bible, the living, breathing word of God, the truth of the universe, upon which salvation, heaven and hell, life and death, truth and error, destruction and misery, your blessing, that all of that hang upon. You're going to put that in my hand and you're going to give me the responsibility and the privilege of being able to teach that in front of people. Are you crazy? Like, don't you know what I am? Like, that's amazing. And I just think, well, he's seated on his throne. Well, you're, you're not going to mess things up too much. I can fix it, you know. And, and it, it attracts me to his power and his grace and his ability. But it puts me in such fear and trembling to realize the potential that the word of God and that my words can have in either building or breaking down. Interestingly, he gives us at the end of that verse there a key to control over the whole body. He says, he that is able to control the tongue or bridle the tongue is able to control the whole body. If you find a person that has learned how to control what comes out of their mouth, you're going to see a person that can exercise discipline in every other area of their life as well. The tongue is a key to so much. And so he says concerning this, we offend and we don't want to. Then he gives two illustrations concerning this in verses three and four. He says, behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Now consider the strength of a horse. The strength and will of a horse is way more powerful than the strength of a man. And if a horse wanted to at any given time, a horse could crush us to death or stampede us or just inflict much pain. A horse doesn't have to do what we ask. But what he's saying is that if we can control its mouth, then we can control its whole body. That's how we've been able to break and tame great steeds and be able to use them and employ them for uh, you know, their work for us or to give us rides or whatever it is that we need a horse to do. Second illustration, similar but different subject. He says, behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, they're subject to the elements and the currents and tides of this world, its storms and all the rest. 
He says, yet they are turned around with a very small helm. Imagine a cruise ship, you know, or imagine those old ships that sailors used to sail. And, and they're these huge, massive things driven by the winds, these fierce winds. But yet this tiny little rudder, something that's just about the size of my arm or smaller, can turn that ship and give it direction wherever it's going to go. You say, what's the point of these illustrations? He's saying this. He's saying, listen, whoever is the captain, whoever has control over your mouth is going to have control over all of your life regardless of the forces on the outside. Our fleshly nature is stronger than a horse and it's able to inflict much damage. The currents and tides of this world, its influences, its lusts, its power, it's very strong. It's stronger than we are. And what the author is saying is that if you can find the right captain for your tongue, then you can operate and navigate successfully with a flesh that's stronger than the will of your spirit and in a world whose current is stronger than your ability to resist it. So let me ask you tonight, who's the captain of your tongue? Is it you? Or have you yielded control over your mouth and your tongue to Christ and seen control of your tongue taken by him? It's a real key in this life. He says, even so, verse 5 The tongue is a little member, just like the helm of a ship or the bit that goes into the horse's mouth. Yet it boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. A third illustration that James gives concerning the tongue is that if you can picture in your mind a forest, a vast forest, acres and acres, hundreds of acres of forest, and yet that forest can be completely consumed by the flame that comes from a little match. And that's the picture that James has in mind as he talks about the tongue. He says, man, it's such a, a little matter, this tongue of ours, but it can kindle such an incredibly great fire. I, I, I've seen this happen a few times, actually three times within my life where, where I've had the potential of starting a huge forest fire by something so innocent and something so unassuming and something that seemed to be and was intended to be so incredibly harmless. The first time I was doing a no-no, I was lighting a bonfire with a gas can. I know, not smart, right? And it just wouldn't take off this fire. And so finally I said, you know what? I'm careful. I'm smart. I could do this. And so I took the gas can and I splashed a little bit of gas on the fire. It bursts up and, you know, still didn't take. Simmered down enough. So I did it again. You know, it flares right up. Pull the gas can away. Went down to nothing. I thought, ah, did it one more time. This time, the nozzle caught on fire of the gas can. So I pull it away and I see flame shooting out of the front of the tip. And it, and it, you know, it startled me. And I didn't know what to do in my first reaction. I mean, if you had a lit match in your hand, what's your reaction? Shake it, right? So I took the gas can and I shook it and more gas came out. So now it's like a flamethrower. There's things. And, and I see this fire still on the gas can. I thought it was going to explode. So I just took it and I did like this discus move and just welled it right over this little berm that was separating the fire pit from the backfield. So the the gas can disappears over the berm and I'm waiting for the explosion. I'm running like I'm in a war movie, you know, waiting, you know, to do this whole thing, you know, wondering what's going to happen. Am I going to live to see tomorrow? So I, you know, turn around, nothing. I look, there's no flame, no smoke. Like what in the world? So I wait like five minutes and then I go around and I look and the gas can is just laying there on its side and the fire is out. And I thought, how in the world did that happen, you know? And I thought, thank you, Lord, you know? And then I went back and lit the gas, the fire with the gas can, you know? No, no, <laughs> just kidding. But that happened two other times. Once, the, the, the second time, the, you know, we were cleaning out our backyard and, and, and I amassed this huge pile of shrubs and, and wild rose uh, in the early spring when everything was wet. And it just sat there in the middle of my backyard until mid-July when everything was really hot and dry. And I thought, this is a great day to just finally burn this pile of, of, of rubbish that, that I've gathered and get it out of the yard. You know, everything's well dried by now. So I, like a responsible man that I am, and because my wife was home, I went and got the garden hose 
and I made this big wet circle around this fire and I got the hose and I had the hose just running there and then I went over with a torch and Rocky was with me and he was at the time probably maybe like seven years old. He's 13 now. So this is going back a little ways. And so we got this seven-year-old, you know, real feisty young man and fire and me and water and my wife's in the house right behind and the whole thing. I went over it and I said to Rocky, I said, it's probably going to take us a little while to get this thing going, you know, so just be patient. And I took the, a torch, map gas, and I just went, and I hit the corner of this thing. And my plan was to go around to the other side and hit the other side of the pile and then just let the fire work to the middle. There was no going around to the other side. It was instantaneous. I mean, the thing just took off and it, and, and, and like the flames were like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, 15 feet, they were whooping, like, it was the most fearful thing I've ever been in the middle of these, these flames. And, and so here I am and I've got the garden hose and I'm about 10 feet back from this fire. And all I'm thinking is if Georgia sees this, she's going to call the fire department. It was that big, you know? And so I'm standing there with the hose and I'm just going, keep cool. Keep cool. Don't move. Don't run. Just just sit there with the hose. And I just kind of like leaned back like I was just relaxed. And I was spraying the hose. And Rocky is going, whoa, Dad, this is huge. Mom, look. And I'm going, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Just, just stop. Sit down. You know, and, and, and then so, so the thing goes up. The thing finally settles down. It didn't take too long, but it settles down to normal. And the, and, and you know, the, you know, the whole, it just keeps going and the episode kind of ends, you know. So about an hour later, I go up and I go into the house and Georgia goes, that was quite some fire that you had going there. And I said, yeah, it kind of took off a little bit. She said, you know, she goes, I almost called the fire department. But I looked at you, and you looked so relaxed, and like you knew what was going on, so I didn't. <laughs> Thank you, you know. But I was scared. I thought, man, I'm going to jail, you know, the whole thing. There was a third time. <laughs> we have this fire pit, like where we actually have real campfires. And it was the first fire of the year, and all of the leftover fall foliage was still on the ground. And there's a rock barrier, and I thought, well, you know, flame doesn't jump rock, you know. So I lit a fire in this thing, and then something distracted me, and I walked away from the fire, and the kids or something, we were doing something in the woods. And it was a little while later, and one of the kids said, Dad, is the bench on fire? You know, the wooden bench? And I said, no, definitely not. You know, I said, just stay here. You know, And I go over, and the fire had crawled in all directions across the leafy ground barrier all the way to, it literally did light on fire the base of the the wooden benches that we made just out of tree stumps and uh you know flat boards and the whole thing and it was out there was just smoldering smoke left and i was like oh lord thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you now you may not have a, a story like that probably should have saved some for if i ever need that illustration again you know but have you ever done that with your tongue? Have you ever had a, a mass of a situation in front of you? Or maybe something that maybe didn't even seem like it was that great to you? And you just said one little word. And the word went out. And it was like, and it, you know, who do you think you are? Said, you know, And those, just those couple words come out of your mouth. You know, it's like, I don't like you. You know, <laughs> and they go out, you know, this policy is garbage, you know, and it's just something, just a reaction, just a spark. It's no big deal. And the next thing you know, that little match has turned into more drama than you could handle in five lifetimes. Am I the only one that's ever done that? <laughs> you know, The power that our words have to take a peaceful, serene summer day and turn it into a forest fire. To take a family or to take ten families or to take a church or a corporation that's at perfect ease and everything is just going along and just a couple of words can turn the whole thing upside down and completely decimate it and decimate lives in the process. A couple of words. I've been there. I won't tell you those stories, you know. But we've all, I think we can in some degree. 
James tells us five things about the tongue that we probably already know, but that we need to hear again in verse 6. He says that the tongue is a fire. The tongue has the ability to cause great damage. Have you ever just considered or experienced it, that once a word has left your mouth, it's out. You cannot get it back. You can't put it back in. The tongue is a fire, number one. Number two, the tongue is a world of iniquity. I mean, just think for one moment about Adam and Eve in the garden and the conditions that that they lived under, the blessing that they had walking with God in the cool of of the day, the privilege that they had and the responsibility, the glory that they were basking and living in. And then here comes a serpent that can talk. In just a few words, has God said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, that you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. He's withholding something from you. And those few words that came out of the mouth of a serpent have caused everything that we have seen, the domino effect of sin and what it has accomplished in the human race and in this fallen world since that day. It started with words that came out of someone's mouth. A world of iniquity can be multiplied in just a few words. Number three, he says, so is the tongue among our members that it defiles the whole body. That this one little part of our body that seems so insignificant on the inside has the ability to defile us from head to toe, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 7 when he was talking to the Pharisees, they were criticizing him because he was eating without washing his hands. And they were saying that he was defiled because he was putting food in his mouth that he had touched with unwashed hands. And Jesus said this to them in response to that. He said, there is nothing from outside a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. And then in verse 20, that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness. Now, all of those things are silent and internal, but then notice he goes on to say, deceit, lasciviousness, that's uncleanness, an evil eye, then blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within. These are the things that defile a man. And the tongue has the ability to defile the entire life based on the things that come out of its uh, words. He says, fourthly concerning the tongue, that it sets on fire the course of nature. Now, that's a very interesting thing to realize about the tongue. What does he mean by the course of nature? The course of nature is just the natural progression of events, right? That's the course of nature. And in our lives, there's a natural progression of events, especially as Christians, as believers. God is working things out. The Bible tells us that, that he has before ordained good works that we should walk in them. He tells us that, that, like David said, that all of my days are planned out before I live in any one of them. And God has a plan for every one of our lives. And there's this natural progression of things that's going to lead us to the place where we end up where God wants us to be. But we have this horrible ability to confuse and and frustrate all of those plans based upon our haste to use our words. It sets on fire the course of nature. You ever done that? Have you ever messed up a good thing in the process of a good thing happening based upon the things that you've said that you wish that you didn't? He says it sets on fire the course of nature. And then fifthly, I love this one, and it is set on fire from hell. When we were kids, somebody was spreading around this rumor, and maybe this is something that happens everywhere. But we had this thing when we were kids. We were told that somewhere on the earth, nobody knows where, there is a hole or a pit that goes all the way down to hell. And we used to look for it. We'd go out in the woods and we'd see a piece of plywood and we'd be like, we found it. This is the hole. You know, me and my brother, we'd go out there. Little did we know that that was actually true. But that hole exists in every single one of us. It's right here. 
there's a direct connection between hell and earth, and it's in my mouth. And yours too, you know. <laughs> you know, he says that it is set on fire of hell. Amazing to consider this tongue that we have. He says, for every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil and full of deadly poison. Now just consider for a moment all the things that man has had, had the ability to tame, all the animals. You go to a circus and you see someone put their head in the mouth of a lion. When Georgia and I were on our honeymoon, we were in Florida and we saw someone do the same thing with an alligator. Just put, put the head right in the mouth of an alligator, you know. And, you know, you think about, you go to SeaWorld and you see what they can do with a whale or with a dolphin or, you know, with these different things or sharks, people that will swim with them, people that carry around a skunk. They've learned to tame a skunk, you know, so that they don't get sprayed. And, 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 and literally every kind of, of beast, elephants, Whales, all of these things have been tamed by men. But yet James says the most remarkable thing in the whole world to consider is that in light and in spite of all of that, he says there's never been a person that has been able to keep their tongue from saying something so stupid that it just ruins everything. He says the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil. And listen to what he says here. It is full of of deadly poison or venom is the idea, is that we have within us this venomous thing in our mouths, this tongue and the ability of of what it can do. What does he mean by that? What is the venom that can come forth from the tongue? There's probably countless things, but I'll give you a few just to consider. First of all, we have the ability with our tongues to venom, venomize or assassinate somebody's character. Slander is a deadly venom. I remember um, as an early Christian listening to a Bible teacher, really getting blessed by the things that I would hear on the radio program that I would listen to. Until a day that someone came to me and said, you listen to that guy? Don't you know what he's done and who he is? And then he said some things about that guy. And, and from that day forward, I couldn't listen to that radio show anymore without thinking about the things that, that were said about that, that particular teacher to the point where I just sh- would shut it off. I wouldn't listen to it anymore because I couldn't help but think about the things that I heard. And I stopped being able to receive because of what I had heard. Now, I, years later, I came to realize that the things that that person told me about that Bible teacher are true about everybody. They're generic flaws that exist in the human race. You know, things like pride and whatnot, you know. And, and, and I started to listen again, and I was blessed again, and I was angry for all the years that I lost not listening because I listened to what someone said about that, that was completely stupid, you know. I know that I've had my character assassinated. I've heard it with my own ears, where I've been walking down a hallway or standing in a particular place and heard people say things about me that were just complete character assassinations. And it's like a venom. You hear it, and it gets in, and, 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 the, and your first reaction is to try to suck the poison out of the wound. You, you just want to say, I, I, I forgive it. I don't want to hear it. I wish I didn't hear that. I'm not going to let that affect me. I, I forgive it, Lord. It's fine. It's okay. It's, it's true. It's okay. You know, and you just let it go. Only to find that like five minutes later, it comes back. And you're like, oh, I feel it. It's, it's in, the venom. It got in. You know, an hour later, you're like, oh, man. And, and, and it hurts. The things that we can do to people with the things that we say, the character assassination, is slander. It's such an evil that can come from, from our mouths. Child pollution. The things that we could say in the presence of a child or that a grown-up can say or that a child can hear maybe coming from the TV or from the radio and things that can get into the ear and thus into the heart of a child that can affect them for the rest of their life. I remember today dirty jokes that I heard when I was five years old on a school bus just given by other kids. Things that polluted and tainted me took away my innocence years before I had the ability to process those things in a right way and discern them for what they were. Child pollution that can come out of the mouth. Destiny killers. 
Things that we can say to people that have dreams or ambitions or goals and we tear those dreams right out of them by the things that we say with our mouths. Well, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, do you know how many people each year set forward with that goal to accomplish that thing? And you know it's less than 1% of, less than a fraction of 1% that actually even begin to realize those goals that you have. It's good to dream, but diversify your options, you know, a little bit. And we take the destiny out of someone, the dreams out of someone that maybe God's put them in the planet to do those very things. Not considering that David would never have been a king by the world's standards. He never would have measured up to the mark. Joseph never would have been a prime minister and the one that saved the known world in his day. He was just a common man, the young son of a large family. He had nothing going for him. But yet with God, aren't all things possible? We ought to be careful of the things that we say. We can say things into a young life that will cause them to flatline and take their dream, their air, right out of them. Insults. Things that we say to people in the heat of a moment that maybe we mean or maybe we don't mean. But things that we let out that we can't get back in. And those words are so damaging. They do such damage in people's hearts. It's a deadly venom. By the design of God... Words shape faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, says that faith comes by hearing. And hearing, ultimately, ideally, by the word of God. That's the best faith. But we have the ability to make people believe things based on what we say. And thus we have the ability to either speak life and to build up, or we can speak death and we can tear down. It's an incredible venom that we have within us. I, by the way, there is only one anti-venom that I know of that, that is effective against words. You know what it is? It's forgiveness. Forbearance and forgiveness. They're cousins. Forbearance means that I'm forbearing. I'm foreseeing that you're going to do something that I'm going to need to bear with. And I'm bearing with it before you do it to me. I'm expecting it. And forgiveness is once it happens, now I'm going to let it go. And by the power of God, that's the only force strong enough to stop the venom of poisonous words. And thank God that we have that. James gives and shows the inconsistency of our tongues. Notice, he says in verse 9, he says, Therewith, with our tongues, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Now, here's, here's the word of instruction that James is bringing to us in this entire chapter. It's right here. He says this. He's saying, listen, these things ought not to be. The tongue of the Christian is to be a sanctified instrument. It's to be under the control and governance of the Lord Jesus himself. And it should not be a fountain that's bringing forth two different things from two different sources, both evil and good. Verse 11, he says, Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. He's saying, listen, your heart and what's in your heart is going to determine ultimately what comes out of your mouth. And so our mouth and what comes out of our mouth is a measurement of whether or not we're saved and of whether or not we are growing. He says very importantly that we should uh, yield control of our tongue to him. Psalm 141 verse 3 uh, gives us the answer as to how does this happen? How do I change the captain Who controls what comes out of my mouth? Notice what the psalmist says. He says, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. And and that's something. If if you realize that, if you sit here tonight and you realize, you know what, my my fountain is impure. There's all kinds of unclean things that come out of my mouth in the form of complaining or in the form of slander or in the form of quick speak or speaking without, without thinking first. Here's the end. Here's the remedy. It's, Lord, you please take control of this heart and take control of this tongue. And Lord, set a watch over my mouth that nothing unclean or defiling would come out, uh, come out of it. Then he, then he gives to us a contrast of wisdoms in, in verse 13 by way of summing it up. He says, who is a wise man 
and endued with knowledge among you. Let him show out of a good conversation, and conversation implies speech, but it includes lifestyle in the language. Let him show that he's endued with wisdom and knowledge out of a good lifestyle, his works with meekness of wisdom or uh, with humility, with humility of wisdom. And, and so wisdom, the meekness of wisdom and humility and the wisdom of our words is what he's talking about here in this verse. Now, wisdom, again, is the practical of life, isn't it? Wisdom is what we do with what we know, the decisions that we make. Do I turn right or do I turn left at this particular junction? Do I buy or do I sell? I need wisdom in all of those things. And the Bible says that if we need wisdom, that we can ask God for wisdom and God will give us that wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God gives liberally without abrading and without partiality. God will give us wisdom when we ask him for wisdom. But that leaves one question to be asked. How will we recognize the wisdom of God when it comes in a particular situation that we have? You know, and so we're asking God, should I take this marriage? Should I take this job? Should I take this house? You know, and, and we, we bring these various things to him. Uh, which church should I go to? Um, road A or road B? How do we know when the wisdom of God is going to come? Now, I love this portion of James chapter 3. Because basically what James gives us here is the key to discerning good wisdom versus bad wisdom. First he gives us the bad wisdom. He says this uh, concerning bad wisdom in verse 14. He says, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, then glory not and lie not against the truth. So wisdom, or let me just read a little bit more. He says, this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. And so when you have a decision and, and you know, you're testing out the wisdom as to whether or not this is the right decision or the right course of action in this particular instance, the first thing that you weigh it against here is, does it first of all come from jealousy? He says, if you have bitter envying, so is the decision that I'm making right now, does it have any basis at all in a jealousy that I might have? I'm jealous of something that someone else has. I want something that I don't have currently, and so I'm making this decision solely based upon my desire to have something that someone else has or something that, that, I, that I want that I don't have. And if that at all, if I can find that in the motivation behind my decision or what I'm going to do in a situation, I can say, okay, that's not God's wisdom. That's a bad motive right there. The word there that he uses when he says bitter envying also means rivalry. So is the decision that I'm making right now based upon my competition with another person? Well, they've gotten this far and I feel like I should be where they are in life. I should have what they have in life. And so I'm, I'm not going to stay with this company. I'm going to move over to this company because I have the potential of then, you know, um, catching up to where they are in life. And there's, there's rivalry that's motivating the decision that I'm making. James says, that's not good wisdom. If that's your motive behind what you're going to do, uh, that's probably not from the Lord. The next thing he says is concerning strife. He says, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. The word strife, it means selfish ambition. In other words, am I pursuing and seeking great things to bolster my own position or my own uh, good or benefit in, in the situation that I'm in? And he says, if that's the motive or the reason behind what you're doing or the decision that you're making, that that is not good wisdom. That is not wisdom that comes from God. He's saying that wisdom has a source in one of three places. He says it's either earthly, sensual, or devilish. Now, the three enemies of the Christian are what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And he's saying that that wisdom does not come from God, but that wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and or the devil. And he says, beware of it. And he says, and if you're making a decision, and that is the motivation behind the decision that you're making in your life, 
then he says, don't lie against the truth and say, God is leading me, or God gave me this great idea, or God is opening this door. He says, if those are your motives behind what you're doing, then don't lie against the truth. He's saying that's not from God. That's from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the outcome of that kind of wisdom and acting on that kind of wisdom, he says in verse 16, he says, where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. The outcome of my life, if I live my life based solely on worldly, sensual, and hellish wisdom, is that my life is constantly going to be in a state of confusion and I'm constantly going to be experiencing evil outcomes in the things that I'm doing. That's not the will of God for my life. You say, well, how do I recognize then godly wisdom? When God's wisdom comes into a situation according to his answering my prayer. He says in verse 17. I'm so thankful the chapter doesn't end at verse 16. <coughs> he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. The word means clean. It means holy. It means it's in, in alignment with the word of God and the revealed will of God. He says, second of all, that wisdom will then be peaceable. The word peaceable means that it's disarming, that it's harmless. That when you weigh out every um, party involved in that decision, then the solution and the outcome is good for everybody that's involved, not just for the individual who's making the decision. But it's peaceable on all fronts. And, and anybody that you give that plan to or uh, you know, make that pitch to, everyone is going to agree there's going to be a peaceableness in the nature of it. The third attribute of godly wisdom, he says, is that it will be um, uh, pure, peaceable, then gentle. And gentle means it will be simple, it will be tender, it will be painless in the way that it's instituted. Like a, like a skillful doctor who knows how to do things with gentleness. You know, everybody loves a gentle doctor, right? Nobody wants uh, a knee surgeon that, that's not gentle, who's rough in the way that he handles things. And so godly wisdom is very gentle in the way that it handles things. It's very graceful. The third or fourth attribute of God's wisdom, he says, is that it's easy to be entreated. And what that literally means is that it's very reasonable, it's very logical, and it's very indefensible. So, in other words, you, you know, you, God gives His wisdom in a particular instance or situation, and when you hear it, there's something inside that you just say, that's the right answer. It's easy, it's easily received. It's, that's wisdom. That's so smart. I, I wish I had thought of that two weeks ago uh, on, on things because it's so wise. That's just so good. And everybody else who hears it, they just say, oh man, that's, that's the answer. Remember Solomon? Remember his wisdom? The two women that came to him and the one rolled over on, and, and you know, the baby fell out and, the one was left in the bed and he wasn't dead and she said she took it over and you know, you know the story, the Solomon and, and, and the baby. And, and the one woman said, this is my baby and the other one said, no, this is my baby and Solomon said, cut the baby in half and give half to the, to the one mother and half to the other mother. And it says that the, the, the true mother stood up and said, no, 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 don't do that. Give the baby to her. And Solomon said, no, give the baby to her. That's the real mother. And everybody who heard Solomon's wisdom put their confidence in him as their leader and their king because they saw that the wisdom was easy to be entreated. They realized that the decision and the judgment that he had made was based upon things that were true and right. It's easy to be entreated. Next, he says, it's full of mercy and good fruit. It's merciful. It's tender. It's full of Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He says, sixthly, it's without partiality. It doesn't favor a side, but rather the solution. It wants the right solution, the right outcome. And then finally, it's without hypocrisy, meaning that it doesn't have a dual motive, meaning that what I'm doing here isn't a cover for some outcome that I'm hoping will happen two or three dominoes down the line but rather it's without hypocrisy. It's, it can be taken at face value. It is what it is. And so what we have here in, in, in this closing verses of James is we have this network wherein where we can take the, the decisions and the things that come into our life and the ideas that we have and the solutions that we have to solve the problems that we have and we can weigh them against what James tells us here 
And we can discern the wisdom, whether it's wisdom from the world or whether it's wisdom from God in the whole thing. And he says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. The wise man or the wise woman that, that uses wisdom aright and includes the, the use of their tongue, that person is going to reap a harvest of righteousness that's been sown in peace. And so James talks to us about the tongue in no uh, gentle language, <laughs> very pointed, very practical, very true, as he, as he talks to us about our tongue and the wisdom um, that comes out of our life uh, based on who's the captain uh, of it. The worship team can come as we close. Do you realize that what we say, what comes out of our mouth as Christians is the biggest thing that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Paul the Apostle said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, he said this. He said, Do all things without murmurings and disputing, without complaining or arguing. And here's why. He says, That you might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What Paul is saying there is that what comes out of our mouth is the first line of evidence that the unbelieving world has that connects us with the life of our Father which is in heaven. And the importance of having a sanctified tongue is no small thing in the body of Christ. As we close, I just want to read to you a series of verses from the Proverbs. Because the question that we, we have is we know that God is the one who must be the captain. But what part do I play in seeing my tongue brought under his influence and control? Proverbs chapter 14 Verse 3, it says that in the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. Notice the contrast between the mouth and the lips. The mouth is what speaks. Do you know what the lips do? They keep words from coming out. <laughs> They're shut. And the lips of the wise will preserve them because the lips of the wise are closed. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3 says, He that keeps his mouth keeps his life, but he that opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. Meaning that if you're one who just talks and talks and talks, it's only a matter of time before you say something stupid. But he that refrains his lips is wise. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 12. He that is void of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. Doesn't slander him. A talebearer reveals secrets, a gossip, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27. He that has knowledge spares his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise. And he that shuts his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20. Where no wood is, the fire goes out. So, where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. Proverbs 29, verse 20. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words, quick to speak? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 32. If you have done foolishly in lifting up yourself, or, um, or, you, have ha or you have an evil thought, lay your hand upon your mouth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Keep your foot when you go into the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. That's a great line, isn't it? For, from words, the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with your mouth and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. 
And then finally, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 14. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? What do all those verses in Proverbs about the tongue and the lips have in common? What should be our tendency? I've never regretted something that I haven't said. Actually, that's not true. There are times I've regretted things I haven't said. But there's more times than not that I don't regret having held my peace and wait to see the outcome of a thing. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that you give us. And Lord, you said very clearly in what we read tonight that there's no one that can tame the tongue. But yet, Lord, you can be the captain of it. And so we ask tonight, Father, that as we have... Uh, um, heard what you've said and as we've related it in so many instances in our lives the things that have just gone so sideways but for no reason we ask tonight Lord that you would be the, the, the captain the governor of our tongue the helm that steers our ship help us Lord we need your wisdom and we pray like David did that you would set a watch upon our lips Lord that you would keep our mouths that we wouldn't speak foolishly And we ask you, Lord, to help us to represent you rightly in the world that we live. Forgive us for complaining. Forgive us for slander. Forgive us for gossip. Forgive us for taking delight in foolish words. Forgive us, Father. Teach us, Lord, to delight. We thank you for Jesus who said that his words are spirit and life. Teach us to speak things that are true and right. So help us, Father. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.